You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading today is from Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may not eat anything, he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? O you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are continuing our series through the New Testament book of Romans, a letter all about the good news that God has formed a new humanity and that our belonging to this new humanity is not based on our race or our religious performance or our particular cultural practices, but we can belong to this new humanity simply through faith in the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. And in this portion, the Apostle Paul is now focusing on relationships and specifically relationships within the church. And if you're guests with us this evening, we're really glad that you're here, but this specific passage is talking to the church. And I'm really gonna address this message to the church. You are very much a part of this conversation and we hope that you'll be edified, but really he's narrowing in on believers, those who belong to the church. Now, In the Bible elsewhere, it describes the church as the manifold wisdom of God, which means that the church is the multicolored, multifaceted display of God's wisdom and creativity in the world. And our differences are intended by God to really display that creativity and display that beauty, to add depth and variation within the body of Christ. But as we know from experience, like in any context, when diverse groups of people come together, it also increases the potential for conflict. Differences end up dividing because we see the world differently, we have different perspectives, we have different approaches, we have different gifts and personalities. We are all very, very different people. And unfortunately, those differences, which are intended to be our greatest strength, gosh, 
if we learn to leverage our differences in this way, would be our greatest strengths. But unfortunately, they often divide us. And that's what's happening here in the first century church in Rome. There was a division occurring over these certain cultural religious practices, religious practices that involved diet and celebration of high holidays like Sabbath and other Jewish festivals. Now, those don't seem to be the dividing issues today. And, and while issues may change throughout the years, although it does seem like vegans are going to be with us forever, the, the, the issue here, or really the challenge, is exactly the same. And here's the challenge, and this is really the pressing question. It's this. How do we remain united despite our differences? That is like the million-dollar question. And I don't mean to sound dramatic, but nothing can be more important than getting this right. In Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, it's what's known as the high priestly prayer. Jesus prays to the Father that his disciples, you and I, would be one just as Jesus and the Father are one. That we among us would experience the same kind of unity that is experienced eternally within the Trinity. And in his prayer, Jesus explains, you know, why that is so important, why this is such a pressing issue. He says this in John 17, that they may become perfectly one so that, it, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them as you loved me. Why? Because God has completely attached the reputation of his love to the unity of his church. That's a risky move. That's a risky move. And it's important because the world ought to get a picture of just how much God loves us based on what they see within the church, based on how we love each other. So honest question, how are we doing? How are we doing in the 21st century? How are we doing reflecting the love of God eternally in our world? Well, what research shows us is that alongside a steady decline in church attendance, one of the more common threads in American Christianity is that people are walking away from the church because of division within the church. Now, I want you to consider this. It's not the wild claims of some historic Jesus Christ who was crucified and then on the third day rose from the dead or that he was born from a virgin or that he was both fully God and fully man or other worldly concepts like angels and demons in heaven and hell. No. It's because of the unbelievable disunity among God's people. And it's also likely the reason that people are not giving church a chance in the first place. I can imagine our neighbors thinking, why would I explore a faith that seems to always be fighting when I have enough fighting happening around me in the world today? Why would I just join another divisive group? Reasonable consideration, if you ask me. We have a unity that is so important, so valuable, that Jesus literally died to obtain it. And if it's such a valuable unity that Jesus died to obtain, then it is vital, vital, vital that through the power of the Holy Spirit, 
we seek to maintain that unity. And so what I wanna do is I wanna work through that pressing question that I presented earlier. How do we remain united despite our differences? And what I wanna do is I just wanna look at this passage and draw out some applications so that we can have some, some ways that we can pursue and maintain the unity that Jesus has obtained for us. The first way is this. We've got to determine the difference between opinions and essential truths. We have got to determine the difference between opinions and essential truths. Now, in C.S. Lewis's fictional book, The Screwtape Letter, which if you've been around here for a while, you know I will reference at least once a month, It's the story, it's the fictional story of an experienced demon training his apprentice nephew demon and all of the various demonic tactics for coming against a Christian in their faith. And in one of the letters, he writes this. I think I warned you before that if you're patient, that's what they call Christians, if your patient can't be kept out of the church, he ought at least be violently attached to some party within it. I don't mean on the really doctrinal issues. About those, the more lukewarm he is, the better. It isn't the doctrines on which we chiefly depend on producing malice, no. The real fun is working up hatred over all the purely indifferent things. In other words, get them so obsessed about non-essential stuff that they completely ignore what is important and they fight over what is not. And then we win. Look at me again in verses one and two. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over what? Opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Okay, so this is not a church that is dividing over important doctrinal issues such as the bodily resurrection of Jesus or his divinity, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. It's not about the authority of scriptures. These were what? Opinions. Opinions about how to remain distinct and devoted to God in a really chaotic, messy, complicated world. And for some believers in the first century Rome, specifically Jewish believers, they felt that the best way that they were going to do that was by abiding by traditional Jewish ceremonial laws. They needed a handle. They needed something concrete to order their lives around so that they could devote themselves to God, and they looked to the Old Testament ceremonial laws, laws that at one time were put in place in order to qualify someone or disqualify someone from actively participating in temple worship. Laws that no longer are imposed on Christians because we access the presence of God through the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. No more rituals to get to God, we simply come by faith in Jesus. But they looked at those ceremonial laws and they said, okay, these are gonna be the ways, helpful ways for us to navigate remaining devoted to God. And so when it came to food, they decided, hey, we're gonna remain kosher. But there was one problem. They were not in Jerusalem. They were not in Tel Aviv. They were in Rome. And if you you can imagine this city, the first century Rome, it was gonna be very difficult for a Jewish believer to remain kosher. Just imagine a Jew 
going to a Roman butcher and being like, excuse me, is this kosher? And he's like, yeah, 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 don't worry about it. The priest was just here. Yeah, actually, we have rabbis. Yeah, 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 priest, rabbi, whatever. It's kosher, trust me. Don't worry about it, go for it. I don't know why he has a New York accent, but he just happens to have it. He's a butcher, for goodness sake, okay? So you're like, is that kosher? I don't know, just go ahead and trust me. Sort of like, all right, that is too complicated. Let's just, let's just go vegan. Let's just remain on a plant-based diet and not risk it. The same went for recognizing certain days. They wanted to order their lives around the Jewish calendar, the Sabbath and certain festival days throughout the year. But at the end of the day, here's the important point. At the end of the day, they were simply matters of preference. That's what they are. Okay, so there's what the scriptures command. This is what we have to do because God has commanded it. And there's what the scriptures prohibit. Thou shall not fill in the blank. The things that God clearly says that we should not do. What we should do, what we shouldn't do. And then there's a world between. And it's marked by preferences. It's marked by opinions. It's marked by personal convictions and what's best in a certain moment. And for today, there are a number of issues. It's frustrating, I know, but there are a number of issues that occupy that middle space. For instance, education for our children. Well, should I homeschool my children? Should I send them to private school? Should I send them to public school? What should we do? It occupies that middle space. Despite many people that believe that this is a thou shall and thou shall not do, it actually occupies that preference area. Or how about politics? What party should I vote for? Who should I support? How involved should I get in politics? And on and on and on. There are a lot of issues that fill that middle spot where the Bible doesn't explicitly say, you've got to do this and you can't do that. And so weak Christians are not people who lack faith per se, although they may. Weak Christians are not those who are frail, frail in their Christianity, and funny enough, weak Christians are not those who are, as one commentator noted, weak because they haven't had meat in years. <laughs> weak Christians are those who struggle to tell the difference between what is essential and what is non-essential. And I got news for you, we got a lot of weak folk in the church today. A lot of weak folks. Who, who just struggle to discern the difference between these are essential issues and these aren't. And then what ends up happening is that they, they push all of their personal convictions into really polarizing categories. And they elevate opinions to the place of most important. Well, if you don't believe like I believe, then you're clearly not a Christian. And what ends up happening is when you use language like that and you treat people like that, you cause unnecessary conflict and division in the church as a result. It is very, very important that we determine the difference between opinions and essential truths. Amen? All right, secondly, how do we maintain this unity? Secondly, we've got to publicly defend the faith and then privately develop your convictions. So the scriptures call us to contend for the faith, we are called to be vocal and adamant and loud about the truths of the Christian faith, to proclaim publicly Jesus and the gospel, to be ready to give an account for the hope that we have. We are to speak out about Jesus. 
But when it comes to matters of conscience and convictions, the call is very different. Look with me again in verse 5. Each one should be fully convinced where? In his own mind. Where do convictions, concerns, opinions, these things belong? In here. And what Paul seems to be saying is that you've got to refine your thoughts and your convictions both humbly and privately. Humbly recognizing that you may not have it all figured out. How can you be prideful about your preferences and opinions if you're like me? I change my opinions often. Five years, I'm probably not going to be adamant about the things that I'm adamant about today. And that's okay because they're preferences, they're opinions. They come and go. So be humble about them. But also, work through them privately, in your own mind. You have no business trying to work out your convictions in someone else's mind. Work it out in your own mind. But we've gotten this backwards, haven't we? Today, we often are way too private, way too timid about the Christian faith, the objective, unchanging truths of Christ and him crucified. We're fearful and like, keep that in. And then way too public, way too vocal about our own subjective, personal convictions. Think about the rise of virtue signaling over the last five years. Virtue signaling, which is the act of publicly expressing opinions in order to demonstrate that you are a good, moral, conscious person. Taking that public, vocal position on some current, relevant issue for the sake of your reputation so that the world knows that you stand on the right side of history. And while I'm not saying that you should never share your convictions... We need to make sure that we've given them proper time to be considered and refined. There are two dramatic scenes in the Gospel of Luke, both of which result in a crowd of people being very public and expressive. And yet, both occurrences in Luke chapter 2, it says this of Mary. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Everyone loud, everyone public, everyone speaking out, and yet what does Mary do? She ponders them in her heart. And I find it interesting that the youngest one in the room became the most contemplative one in the room, taking time to consider things before she spoke, taking time to refine her thoughts before she went public. Little side note, I have found that people tend to be the most adamant and vocal about their opinions when they are not yet convinced themselves. Sometimes I hear people speaking and I'm like, are you trying to convince me or are you just trying to speak loudly to convince yourself? I think it's the latter. So ponder before you say or do anything publicly. Here's some helpful ways to think about this. Ask yourself, who is this serving? When you feel so compelled, I gotta speak my truth, I gotta say something, who is this serving? Is it for you? Is it cathartic? Or are you actually seeking to serve other people? Does this need to be said publicly? Does this need to be posted online? Or maybe is this better suited for my journal to be privately considered? Only you can answer that. You guys still with me? 
hey, we're gonna push through the like lull, the afternoon lull. Pretty soon we're gonna be so awake, so ready for four o'clock service. Number three, prioritize people over preferences. How are we gonna maintain unity? We've gotta prioritize people over preferences. In his little book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer warned Christians that our preferences can actually be a threat to our unity, especially when we esteem our own opinions very highly. And he said this, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. So who came today to destroy this community? And he goes on to say this, God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. They enter the community of Christians with their demands set up by uh, their own law, and then they judge one another and God accordingly. Sound familiar? Seems to be what Paul is talking about here. This is how things need to be. These are my demands for how people operate. And so when we elevate our preferences over people, which we all do, by the way, we're left with really only two possible ways to respond to those who think and act differently than us. To despise them or to judge them. Look at me again in verse three. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Well, why? For God has welcomed him. So Paul's concern is that this is going both ways from those who abstain for those who do not abstain. One group is despising the other. That means to look down on someone, to make no account of someone, to reduce or to belittle someone because of their opinion. And then this other group is judging them because they do partake. They're passing judgment, they're writing them off. See how it's going both ways. But regardless of where they stand on this issue, both groups are condescending. Both groups are looking down on the other person because of what they do or don't do. So I want you to think about something for a second. I want you to recall the last couple of years which is like fodder for this conversation here. Recall the last few years and specifically recall the interactions that you have had with friends and family over politics and vaccinations. And anticipate the conversations you're gonna have Thanksgiving and the reason that you may not be showing up to family Thanksgiving this year. Re re recall those conversations. Your mind probably goes to the most contentious disagreement that you experienced over the last, this last year, or this most, the most contentious ongoing disagreement. And I want you to think about how you felt about that person that you disagree with now. I want you to think about how you began to treat that person. I want you to begin to think about how you categorized that type of person from that point forward. Chances are you did not walk away thinking, man, they're so smart. <laughs> what an upstanding individual. I totally disagree with them, but they are really compelling and they represent the other view so well and so winsomely. I'm so glad I have that conversation. 
more likely you're asking, how are you even human? Were you born this stupid and stubborn, or did you become this over time? Like, how did this happen to you? Who, who hurt you? <laughs> the temptation that we face, wherever we fall in these issues, by the way, Paul is like, I'm not going to play sides here. That's not the issue. Wherever we find the issue, or wherever we fall in this issue, the temptation that we face is that we tend to reduce other people that we sharply disagree with. We belittle them. We dehumanize them. And what we do is we minimize the person in order to minimize their, their argument. They redu we reduce them down to the lowest common denominator caricature of people in order to dismiss whatever it is that they believe in that they're saying. But God calls us into an extremely different approach to those that we disagree with. And this is what Paul's essentially saying here. What Paul's saying is, don't write off people that God has written in. How dare you alienate Someone whom God has welcomed. The word here for welcome has so much more, is so much more than just simply tolerating someone's presence. I think for some of us, like sometimes it feels like the most we can do is just simply tolerate their presence. Okay, I will like grit my teeth and I'll be in the same room as you for about an hour and that's all I can do. But this idea of welcome is so much more than tolerating. This idea of welcome here means to literally grant access to your heart. And it's translated to, to hold and embrace someone by the hand. To embrace them by the hand. Think about this. Concepts, opinions, preferences, they can't be embraced. They're abstract, they're ethereal. You can't hold them. Only people can be embraced. And we will never be able to embrace those whom we disagree with, if we're constantly grasping at our preferences. And so this is what Paul seems to be saying. He's saying, with one hand, cling to Christ. With your other hand, embrace the people that God has called you to fellowship with, and now be open-handed with your preferences, because you can't cling to both. You can't cling to both. Our abstract ideas, our abstract opinions, those things that we attempt to hold so closely, they will never, ever, ever compare to the beauty and the complexity of flesh and blood image bearers of God. And I want you to think about this. In eternity, 10,000 years from now, a million years from now, 100 million years from now, those things that you are so adamant right now about, those things that you feel so passionately about, they're gonna be forgotten. You won't remember a single thing. And yet that brother and sister that you disagree with, there they will stand with you in eternity, worshiping the Lord side by side. You guys still with me? Let's maintain the unity also by considering who you are and who you are not. Consider who you are and who you are not. Now I can only speak for myself, but most of the conflict that I experience in my life stems from an inflated view of myself. I know it's really hard to imagine, but it happens about once a year. Just kidding, um, daily, moment by moment. And it's me getting upset or combative 
because someone is not taking me and my opinion as serious as I think that they should. It's someone not getting in line with my vision for their life that is so clearly better than their own vision for their life. It's someone's actions or words popping that little bubble of control. Look with me again in verse four. Paul asks a really important question. It's a really pressing question. Who are you? Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And so in those moments of frustration where we're thinking like, why are you not seeing things clearly like I see them? Why are you not falling in line in all the ways that I've commanded you? Why are you not listening? If you just did what I said, your life would be easier, I promise. What is wrong with you? We need to remember a few things. First, I'm no one's master. I'm not even my own master. At the end of the day, I'm a fellow servant. And whatever sovereign, all-important position that I thought I had in someone's life, I was absolutely mistaken. I have no place to control anyone. I have no position to make demands or to manipulate anyone's life. I am no one's master. And secondly, I'm no one's judge. And while we do bear each other's burdens, and, and we are called to care for one another and hold each other accountable. But in the end, each person answers to God and to no one else. And in the end, each person is going to give a, an account to God for their own lives and for no one else's life. And thirdly, I'm no one's savior. I'm absolutely no one's savior. It says very clearly here, it is the Lord that is able to make someone stand now and in eternity, not me. I'm no one's master. I'm no one's judge. I'm no one's savior. And yet, strangely, that doesn't seem to stop us, does it? We still get it in our minds that we are someone's master, judge, and savior. And why do we do this? Why do we try to control people? Why do we try to manipulate people? I think the answer comes back to our own identity. It, it's common to find faults in others in an attempt to define ourselves, to define who we are. It's what we see in the Pharisee as he prays in the temple in Luke chapter 18. He approaches the Lord and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners and the unjust and adulterers. And look, even this tax collector over here. Thank you, God, that I'm not as bad as these people. Now, I wonder what our Pharisee prayer would be today. Maybe it would go something like this. God, I thank you that I am not a Trump supporter. Or God, I thank you that I'm not a Biden supporter. God, I thank you that I'm not like this anti-vaxxer. God, I thank you that I'm not like this vaxxer over here. See, what we're doing is we're trying to establish our significance and our worth and our position in God's family based on those whom we disagree. But within these moments of identity crisis, and we all experience this, 
God graciously offers us an opportunity to be reminded of who we actually are. And he doesn't do this by cutting us down to size. No, God is far more gracious than that. What God does here is he lifts us up into something better. Something better. Look with me again in verse 8 and 9. For we are the Lord's. Who are we? We are God's. For to this end Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Who we are becoming in Jesus Christ, who we have become in Jesus, accepted, forgiven, freed from sin, confident to stand in the face of judgment, all these things that we are now in Jesus Christ are infinitely better than anything that we could ever try to become through comparison. Jesus has spoken finally over us. This is who you are. Why would you try to position yourself now by comparing yourself to others? But when we root our identity in God's gracious welcome, when we root our identity in who we are in Jesus, here's what's gonna happen. We become gracious with other people. We become patient with people that are different. We become the welcoming community that God envisioned among us, amen? Fifth, you need to attach your decisions to worship, not personal preferences. Look at me again in verses, uh, verse six. The one who observes the day observes in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So what Paul recognizes here is these are, this has nothing to do with moral absolutes or right and wrong and those sort of things. Both groups, those who X, Y, and Z, and those who do not X, Y, and Z are both able to honor God through their decision and through their actions, and that is totally key here. That is absolutely essential. So when it comes to our liberties, those things that occupy the space between what God has commanded and what God has prohibited, the question is not, well, can I get away with this? Wrong question. The question is not, well, what aligns with my personality best? Wrong question. The question isn't even, well, what is best in this situation? Good question, not the best question, though. The primary question ought to be this. Can I glorify God through this? Can I glorify God through this? This is such a helpful question when we're navigating all of the gray areas of life. Because there are going to be so many situations where there is no explicit biblical teaching. But in those moments where we don't know what to do, when we're not told exactly what to do, we can still lean into this question. What is gonna honor God most in this? I've seen the need for this question in a lot of areas within pastoral ministry, specifically in the area of dating and engagement. There are clear teachings about what God expects of marriage. There's clear teachings about God's definition of marriage and his vision for marriage, but then when it comes to premarital relationships, outside of some like really biblical, basic biblical uh, instructions like love one another and not engage in sexual immorality, there's not a lot of explicit teaching on dating. And there's not a lot of explicit teaching on engagement. 
And so in my pastoral counsel, I have to be really, really careful to not impose my own opinions and my own convictions on other people and bind the conscience of individuals on something that the Bible hasn't clearly spelled out. But as I help couples work through these topics, I'm constantly asking these questions. I'm constantly saying this. I'm not gonna tell you what to do, but here's a good question. Can you glorify God through this? Is this area of your relationship most glorifying to God? Is this the most honoring way to treat each other physically and emotionally and financially and fill in the blank? Is God honored by the decisions that you're making? Is God honored by the the direction that your relationship is heading? The same goes for the use of our finances. The same goes for the use of our time. The same goes for the use of our time spent on entertainment and fill in the blank. Connect your worship, connect your decisions rather to worship, not to your preferences. Amen? Final point. Final point. Take your stand upon Jesus and not your judgments. How can you actively participate in maintaining the unity that Jesus died to obtain? You got to take your stand on Jesus, not your judgments. Now, there's a th- as I look at this passage, there's a theme that appears multiple times, and it's standing, 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 standing. And I think it's there, and it's intended to get us to consider questions like these. So where am I standing? Where are we standing? What are we standing on? What are we allowing, or what, sorry, what is going to allow us to withstand the day of judgment when we give an account for our lives? What are we staking our lives and our eternity on? What is going to matter in eternity? There's an old phrase, and it goes like this. If you don't stand for something, you're going to fall for anything. And it's a helpful principle. And it says, essentially, that you've got to have something that you're going to take your stand on. And if you don't, you're going to fall for anything that comes along that claims to be important. You're going to be constantly pulled to the next agenda, to the next important thing. My observation is that people take strangely strong stances on unessential issues because they haven't yet found that one thing worth living and dying for. People take those strange, like, I I talk to people all the time, like, why are you so passionate about that? because they haven't found the right hill to die on. And for the believer, ironically, the hill worth dying on is Calvary. The hill that Jesus died on. What do I mean? It means that we have to take our ultimate stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul would say this in another letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you what? Stand. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, what is most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with with the scriptures. 
I gave you that one thing to cling to. I gave you that one thing to stand on. I gave you that one hill to die on. And it's Christ and him crucified and nothing else. And nothing else. And at the end of our lives, we're not going to stand on our opinions. At the end of our lives, we're not going to stand on our judgments. Those won't save us. For the Christian... We are going to stand on Jesus Christ, all that he is and all that he's accomplished for us. And today, in the meantime, it is only the gospel that is true enough, that is powerful enough, that is timeless enough, and that is stable enough to support our lives and sustain the unity that Christ obtained with his own blood. We can care about our opinions, we can pursue our preferences but let's die on this hill. Let's make this the most important thing in our life, the most important thing in our church, Christ and him crucified, amen? amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For